Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 93, How Computers Work, part 3, Logic Gates and Components. I'm your host, James Fodor. So in this episode, uh, we're going to continue on from where we left off in the previous episode and explain how we can use transistors to build logic gates and in turn how we can use logic gates to implement different logical circuitry components that are used in processes in modern computers. Before we get to that, however, we need to talk about Boolean algebra and logic to explain why these logic gates are so important. Recommended pre-listening for this episode should fairly obviously be previous episode, How Computers Work, Part 2, in order to give you the background about how transistors work and uh, how they're relevant to gate design. So let's jump in and start talking about Boolean algebra and logic. Boolean algebra is a branch of algebra in which the values of the variables can only be true or false, usually donated as 1 and 0. In, el- in elementary algebra, which you would have learned at high school, the main operations are the usual arithmetic operations of plus, minus, division, multiplication, and the variables just at any old number. In Boolean algebra, the variables can only be zeros and ones. The key operations are the logical operations of or, and, and negation. It is a useful formalism for describing logical relations in the same way that ordinary algebra describes numerical relations uh, between different quantities. Now, as noted in the previous episode, modern digital computers operate under the digital abstraction, which essentially only considers two possible states of affairs in a circuit, low voltage or high voltage, and there's a threshold. Anything below this counts as low voltage, anything above it counts as high voltage. In principle, you could try to distinguish as many voltages as you like. You could try to distinguish 3, 4, 20 different uh, levels of voltages in, in a wire and correspond each of those to a particular type of signal. The trouble is that the constraints of trying to operate these devices at very high speed and very small size and low power uh, make noise a big factor. So if you're not waiting a long time for these devices to reach equilibrium, that's the high speed part. If they're small, so there aren't large numbers of electrons present, and if they're low power, so again, there aren't very large numbers of electrons actually transferring the currents or or transferring voltages, there's going to be quite a bit of noise built into the system, and so it's going to be hard to distinguish fine distinctions between uh, different voltages. So recognizing large numbers of different voltage levels is difficult. It's much easier to just try to make it as simple as possible and only distinguish between two possibilities, low voltage or high voltage. That's why binary works so well in digital computers, because it's much easier to build devices that that work on that basis. Because we have devices that work on uh, binary inputs and outputs, zeros or ones, we need an algebra, we need an abstract formal way of describing how to perform operations on binary inputs and binary outputs, and that's what Boolean algebra does. Now, it's been proved that any logical expression can be represented, any expression in Boolean algebra can be represented using either only NAND gates or only NOR gates. So these are sometimes called universal gates because basically we can build anything we like using only NAND or only NOR gates. Now, I haven't defined NAND or NOR gates, so I'll jump to that in a moment. But there are a number of main different types of logic gates that perform different Boolean operations, and that the most important of them are the NAND and the NOR gates, because, as I said, those are logically universal. If you have any one of those, you can build any of the other gates and therefore make any circuit that you like. Now, you might be wondering why we have logic gates in circuits. The answer is that, remember, the point of a computer is to try to automate the process of calculating the results of formal logical or arithmetic operations to compute the values of functions, in other words. Because we've decided to go with the binary route, we need to have a straightforward way of instantiating carrying out these formal operations on binary units in hardware. And logic gates are a very convenient way of doing that. It builds the logic into the hardware itself so that we can easily construct more complex devices and have a handle on what uh, we're actually computing and uh, what we're doing in a given circuit. So this is why we use logic gates. It's a way of connecting up the abstract mathematical or logical operations that we're trying to get our computer to perform with the real hardware. Uh, Finally, designers also generally want to reduce the number of gates they use. And to compute any moderately complex function, there are usually many equivalent ways of doing it. So there are complicated procedures that are followed to try to reduce the number of gates that are used to perform any given 
operation or computer given function in Boolean algebra. And these use uh, formalisms called De Morgan's laws and, uh, and other heuristics and algorithms that you can study in the textbooks, but we won't really cover here. Um, I just want to emphasize that there's usually not only one way of doing something in a logic circuit. There are many ways that you can achieve the same ends, and generally you want to do it in the fewest gates as possible because it reduces the cost and often the time taken as well. The more gates, the the more logic gates, and therefore the more transistors the current have to, has to flow through, the longer it takes for the computation to be performed. Well, that being said, let's have a tour of the main logic gates, and each of these corresponds effectively to one of the main operations in Boolean algebra. Logic gates almost always have two inputs and one output. The one exception to that is the NOT gate, which is the simplest type of gate. It takes in one input and gives one output. Each input and output you can think of as corresponding to a single electrical wire, which carries a voltage of either high or low, uh, so as a bit, zero, or one. In the NOT gate, you have a one input, and the output is just always the opposite of whatever the input is. So it's an inverter. It just inverts whatever your bit is. So when the input is zero, the output is one. And when the input is one, the output is zero. That's very simple. Useful, but simple. Now, the other gates, the other six gates that we're going to talk about have two inputs and one output. So they perform some operation depending upon the voltages or the values of the, the two input wires. Probably the easiest to understand is the AND gate. That takes two inputs and outputs uh, the result. The result is zero in all cases unless both of the input wires are one, in which case the output is also one. So that's just a logical AND. That's very easy to understand. The output is only a one if the inputs, A and B they're often called, if both A and B are both 1. If only one of them is 1, it's still 0, and if they're both 0, the output is also 0. Notice when I'm describing these logic gates that for a logic gate that takes two inputs and gives one output, there are only ever four possibilities. Either both inputs could be 0, or both inputs could be 1. Those are two possibilities. The other two possibilities is that A is 1 and B is 0, or B is 1 and A is 0. So there are only four possible outputs that you have to define in order to completely define the operation of one of these logic gates. So we've just defined AND. It's always 0 unless both the inputs are 1, and that corresponds to our notion of AND. Now, the gate that I mentioned before, a NAND gate, is a NOT AND gate. It's the same as if you had an AND gate and then put a NOT on the output. So in other words, it's always 1 unless both of the inputs, A and B, are 1, in which case it's a 0. So it's just the opposite of an AND gate. OR gate works a little bit differently to how you might expect. So it's to in, if either one of its inputs or both of its inputs are 1, then the output is 1. The only time the output is 0 is when both of the inputs are 0. Now that works in accordance with what we think of as inclusive OR, that is one or the other or both. But you, So you just have to have at least one of the inputs being 1 and then the output is 1. NOR is similar to AND, and NOR is one of the other universal gates that I mentioned. It's just, again, the exact opposite of OR, like putting an OR gate uh, then through a NOT gate. It's 1 when B and A, both of the inputs are 0, and 0 in all of the other cases. The two most difficult gates to understand are XOR and XNOR gates. An XOR gate uh, stands for exclusive OR. It's actually generally what we think about when we think of as OR, that is one or the other but not both. So its its output is 1 if exactly one of the inputs is 1, but it's 0 if both of them are 0 or both of them are 1. XNOR is the opposite of XOR. It is 1 when both of the inputs are 0, or when both of the inputs are 1, but 0 when 1 is a 0 and 1 is 1. Another way of thinking about it, an XNOR gate, is that it's it tells you if both of the inputs are the same. So it's 1 when they're either both zeros or both 1s, and 0 if they're different. So you can think of it as a matcher, if you like. It'll only be one if they're both the same. So to help understand that, I, I've compiled this little table here to sort of translate the formal definition of these of the functions computed by each of these logic gates into English. So a NOT gate is just NOT. It just inverts it. That's easy to understand. And an AND gate is, again, just AND. That's easy to understand. An example would be if you had two requirements that simultaneously must be met. So to be eligible for the job, you must have a degree and five years of experience. If you only have one of those things, or if you don't have any of them, then you won't be able to apply for the job. NAND basically means anything but both. So an example of this would be you can have 
either dessert, you know, in one of those fancy meals where you can pick either of the desserts, you can have one or the other of, of the ice cream or the custard, say, or you can skip dessert entirely so you can have neither of them, but you can't have both of them because that's greedy, you know. So that's what NAND is, just not both of them. Or the OR gate is at least one of. So, for example, if you have to show your identification, you might say that you have to show a driver's license or a passport. You could also show both, that would be fine, but you have to show at least one. If you don't show at least one, then uh, you, you won't be able to prove your identity. A NOR gate effectively corresponds in English to none. That is, you can't have or you mustn't have any of the, the possibilities, uh, the possible inputs being a one. So an example would be that you cannot go on this ride if you are under 12 years old or if you are less than a certain height. You must have none of those properties pertaining uh, in order for the output to be one. In other words, in order for you to be able to go on the ride. XOR is exclusive, also one or the other, but not both. An example would be that you have to, you're doing a degree and you have to pick an academic major. You can pick computer science or electrical engineering. You can't not pick either of them, because you have to have a major, but you can't pick both of them either, because you can't have two. You can have one or the other, but not both. And XNOR is the opposite of XOR. Uh, it just means, effectively, neither or both. So this is probably less common uh, in practice, but again, the easy way of thinking about this is that it just tests if both of the inputs are the same or not. So now that we've talked about the logical operations in Boolean algebra, and each of these has a corresponding gate, a physical device that you can build to implement that logical operation, let's discuss how you can actually build the, this physical device using transistors. All of these can be built using transistors connected up by wires. We will focus on the most important logic gates for a computer. So these are inverters, so NOT gates, and NAND gates. Most uh, electrical devices these days are made up from NAND gates, remember, because they're logically universal. It turns out to be easier, potentially, to have a few more NAND gates rather than having, if you need an XOR gate, say, just make it using NAND gates, than having a specialized XOR gate, which you then have to manufacture sort of separately. It's easy just to make a whole bunch of the same thing and then connect them up in the way that you need. So that, that's why logically universal gates are so useful in, in uh, producing electronic devices. So a single logic gate will usually be made from somewhere between two to four CMOS transistors. So a single transistor is not enough to produce a logic gate, but you need a couple of them, but not too many. And the logic gate is defined by its logical behavior. So that depends only on its input and output relationships, as I've described in the Boolean algebra section. Now, an important thing to understand is that when logic gates are drawn in digital system circuits, if you look at diagrams or textbooks and so on, you'll only generally see input and output wires. These are the ones that carry the logic symbols, the zeros and the ones, the inputs and the outputs. In practice, however, there are always at least two additional lines, electrical currents, lines carrying electrical current, that are not shown, one of which connects to a high voltage source, so 5 volts, and one connected to the ground, 0 volts. So, in fact, usually for every logic gate, there will be four wires at least four wires, sometimes more. In the case of an inverter, for example, there'll be the single input and the single output, but also then the high voltage source and the low voltage source, and those are crucial to get the thing to work. They're not, however, part of the logical operation of the circuit. They don't define the zero or one's inputs or outputs. They're, they serve a, uh, a physical implementation purpose, not a logical purpose, and that's why they're not drawn on the logic diagrams. But it's important to realize that they are implicitly there because you need them to implement this, the logic gate in the actual real physical device. Now, it's tempting to think, and, and this confused me for a while studying this, it's tempting to think that we form circuits with logic gates by just connecting the outputs of gates, of logic gates, to the inputs of other gates and the outputs of gates together and everything just uh, gets wired up together in one big complicated circuit. And You put the inputs through and the operations pass through all the logic gates and it's outputted in terms of the, the output signal on some wire on the other side of the circuit. That's not exactly what happens, and in fact, if you tried to do that, it wouldn't work. The reason is because you can't simply connect up the outputs of two different CMOS transistors together. Because if one transistor was on while the other one was off, there'd be the voltage on the wire would be undefined. One, one transistor would be trying to turn the wire on, or put a high voltage on it, and the other would be trying to turn it off, to put a low voltage on it. And so the result would be undefined. They'd be competing for control of the wire. Likely that would lead to overheating and other problems and undefined logical outputs in, in the intermediate forbidden zone that I talked about. So all sorts of potential issues there if you tried to do that. 
So that's not the way that logic gates are implemented or circuits are implemented in practice. In fact, what happens is that logic gates are constructed according to the following principle. Input wires, so that's the logical inputs uh, that, that go into the logic gates, always connect up to the gate region of transistors, while output wires connect up, directly or indirectly, to either the ground or the high voltage wires. Now this way, input and output wires are never actually directly wired up to each other in a single circuit. That is, current can never flow from the input of a logic gate through to the output of the logic gate, because they're not electrically connected to each other. The input of the logic gate is always connected up to the gate, which, remember, is separated from the other regions of the, the, the semiconductor regions by the insulator region. That's the oxide part of the metal oxide semiconductor in MOSFET. The oxide electrically separates the gate region from the rest of the device. And thus, there's always an electrical separation between the input wires of a logic gate, which connect up to the gates, and the output wires, which connect up to the sources and, well, both the source and the sink, actually, of, of the transistors. So the way that a logic gate works, therefore, is that the input determines the gate voltages on all of the transistors, which in turn flip on or off the transistors, which then determines whether the output connects to the high or the low voltages. So input and output are never directly connected to each other. The input is actually a control voltage which determines whether the output gets connected to the high voltage wire or the low voltage wire, but both of which are always there. It's just which do you connect to as, as the output wire. So hopefully that's sort of clear. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important distinction that you, you don't have just a single circuit flowing from the input to the output. The input is the control voltage, which connects up to the gate on the transistors and determines whether the switches go on and off, and therefore whether the, the output connects up to the, the positive voltage or the, the zero voltage. So the upshot of this is that when you're following the logic through a digital circuit from input to output. Following input through the logic device through the output is correct when you're talking about the flow of logical information, or the bit flow in other words, but it's not correct if you think that that represents the flow of current through a circuit, because the current is not flowing through the device from input to output in that way. In fact, very little current is flowing in a CMOS device because largely it's affected by just ch changes in the in the bits of the inputs and outputs. It's affected by changing the voltages. But even ignoring that, the inputs and outputs are not connected up in the same circuit, so there wouldn't be fo uh, current flowing anyways. Now, with that background, we can explain how to implement CMOS logic gates using MOSFETs. Remember, CMOS is stands for complementary metal oxide semiconductors, complementary meaning that it uses PMOSs and NMOSs in conjunction. So a given logic gate will always include at least one of each of these types of transistors. Let's start with the simplest case, which is a NOT gate or an inverter. And you can make an inverter in CMOS using just two transistors, so it's a fairly simple circuit. One is a PMOS and one is an NMOS. Now, as usual, as I discussed in the previous episode, we connect up our NMOS source to the ground and the PMOS source to the high voltage. So, so the, the sources in each one are connected up to, to different voltages. Now that that's done, all we have to do is connect up the input to the gate of both of the gates. Now, at this point, we have to pause and say that there are, there are two senses in which we're using the word gate here, which gets very confusing. One is a logic gate. So that's an electronic device, like a NOT gate or a NAND gate, that's made up of a bunch of transistors, and it has inputs and outputs. It performs a Boolean operation. The other sense in which we use the word gate is that the conductor region that sits between the source and the drain regions of a transistor and forms the region in which we apply the external voltage that allows us to turn on or off the circuit. So gate can mean a bunch of transistors performing a logical function in a logic gate, or it can mean a their particular region or component of a transistor. I will try to be clear in which one I'm referring to. So in this case, we connect up the input of the logic gate, the overall input to the gate as a whole, that is connected up to the gate regions of both of the transistors that make up the logic gate. So input actually goes to, to both of the gates of the transistors without any difference, it just goes straight to both of them. We then take the output of the logic gate as a whole from the drains of both of the transistors. So the input goes to the gates of both transistors and the output comes from both of the drains. The only real difference between whether the, the, P, the PMOS transistor and the NMOS transistor is that in the case of the NMOS transistor, 
the source is connected up to zero voltage, whereas in the PMOS transistor, the source is connected up to high voltage. And that's, again, always the way we do it in, in CMOS. So here's how it works. Suppose the input is one, so there's a high voltage on the input wire. We then have a high voltage on the gates of both of our transistors. This turns the PMOS off, because PMOS is always turned off by a high voltage. That removes the inversion layer and gets rid of the channel, so the PMOS turns off. That means that the output is no longer connected to the high voltage, because remember, the source of the PMOS was connected up to the high voltage. If the switch was on, the drain would be connected electrically to the source, and the drain is connected electrically to the output. So if the PMOS was turned on, the output would be connected to the high voltage. But it's not. When the input is 1, the PMOS is off. So the output is not connected to the high voltage. However, when the input is 1, the NMOS, the other transistor, does turn on, because NMOS always turns on with a high gate voltage. So in this case, because the transistor turns on, there's, a connect, there's an electrical connection formed between the source and the drain of the NMOS transistor, which pulls the output voltage down to zero, because remember, the source of the NMOS is connected up to the ground, and thus the output wire is electrically connected only to the ground and not to the high voltage, and hence the output is a zero. So when the input is one, the output is zero simple. If the input is zero, it's just the opposite. The PMOS turns on while the NMOS turns off. Because the NMOS is off, the output is not connected to the ground, but because the PMOS is, uh, is on, the output is connected to the high voltage. So if the input voltage is zero, the, high, the output voltage is high. So if you put zero in, one comes out, and if you put a zero in, a one comes out. That's an inverter. Very simple setup just using two CMOS transistors, a PMOS and an NMOS. The NAND gate is a bit more complicated. We need four transistors to get a NAND gate to work. Remember, NAND is the logical operation, not AND. So the, the output should be a 1 in all cases, except the case in which both of the inputs are a 1. So the basic setup is kind of similar to the, the setup in our inverter, except in this case, what we need to do is wire up both of the PMOS transistors in parallel whereas the NMOS transistors are wired up in series. Now, wiring up two circuit elements in series means that current has to flow through both of them in order to complete the circuit, whereas in parallel it means it can sort of take, it can go through one or the other. They're sort of next to each other on separate wires that both lead to the same end rather than one next to each other along the same wire. So we have, in this case, in the circuit, two PMOS transistors, again, with their sources both connected up to the, the high voltage, and two NMOS transistors, again, with their sources both connected up to the low voltage, to, to the ground. The difference, though, is that the PMOSs are in parallel, whereas the NMOSs are in series. So what does this mean? Because the NMOSs are in series, the only way for the output wire to be electrically connected to the ground, in other words, the only way for output to be zero, is if both of the NMOS transistors that are wired up in series, if both of those are turned on. In contrast, because our PMOS transistors, remember the PMOS are the ones that connect up with the source to the high voltage, our PMOS transistors are wired in parallel. So in order for the output voltage to be electrically connected to the high voltage, all we need is at least one of those PMOS transistors to be turned on, because the current can flow through one or the other, but it doesn't have to flow through both. Now, with that setup, it's, it should be fairly clear how we can turn this into a NAND gate. All we need to do is connect up the gates of each of the transistors to each of them connects to one of the inputs. So one PMOS connects up to input A, and the other PMOS connects up to input B. One of the NMOSs connects up to input A, and the other of the NMOSs connects up to input B. So you've got one input going to one type of each gate. With this setup... The only way to get the output voltage connected up, the output wire connected electrically to the zero voltage of the ground, is if both of the inputs are one, and hence both of the NMOS transistors are turned on, allowing current to flow through both of them, because they're in series, it has to flow through both of them, and thus electrically connect up the output to the ground. So the output is only a zero, it only connects to the ground, in the case where both inputs are one which is exactly what we want, not AND. It should be zero only when both inputs are one. In all other cases, at least one, or possibly both of the inputs, are a zero. But if either of the inputs is a zero, then 
at least one of those PMOS transistors that connect up to the high voltage will be turned on. Remember, PMOS transistors turn on when you give them a low voltage on, on the gate region. Therefore, if any of the inputs is a zero, at least one of those PMOS transistors turns on, thereby creating an electrical circuit between the high voltage wire and the output wire, and thus causing the output to be one. So the way we've wired up this circuit, because of the difference in the putting the PMOSs in parallel and the NMOSs in series, the output will only ever be zero if both of the inputs are one. In all other cases, the output will be electrically connected to the high voltage and thus will be a one. Hence, we have a NAND gate. And the other types of gates we mentioned, OR and XOR and so on, can be implemented similarly, but I'll only discuss the NOT and the NAND gates here because those are the main ones used in, in actual uh, digital circuits. One important point uh, to mention before we move on to the logic components is that logic gates are subject to what's called propagation delay. Now this means that it takes some finite period of time for the electrical signals to pass through the wires and transistors and for the output to stabilize to match the appropriate input value. That doesn't all happen instantaneously. You need to have an equilibration of charges and, and potentials and, and so on. All of the electron motion and electric field changes take some time, so there needs to be a time for that to settle down and the correct values to, to be observed on the output relative to the input. And that period of time, this equilibration time or propagation delay, places a limit on how long we need to wait before we can read the outputs of a given circuit. So if you were able to read the outputs of a logic gate just the tiniest fraction of a second, maybe a femtosecond or something, that's, that's less than a nanosecond, after you apply the uh, input voltages, you probably wouldn't see the correct output voltage. It would probably be a bit of a mess because you haven't waited long enough uh, for all of the charges and, and, and voltages to equilibrate. You need to wait for that propagation delay in order to get the output to, to make sense. Propagation delay places a limit on how fast you can run computers, essentially, because the faster you try and run them, the um, more you push up against propagation delay. Propagation delay can be reduced by making your devices smaller, obviously, because then you don't have as long to wait for all the electrons to move around and things to equilibrate. So that's a big reason why there's been a race to try and make transistors as small as possible and to fit more of them on a circuit, because you can reduce propagation delay and hence run your computer faster. Technically, it means running at a higher clock speed. We'll get to what that means in a little bit. But having now discussed the key logic gates and how you can build them out of PMOS and NMOS transistors, I'm now going to mostly stop talking about transistors and focus on the logic gates and how we can use these logic gates uh, and put them together in different arrangements to form logical components which perform uh, more useful functions than just the very simple Boolean operations. Now, remember that I'm going to be talking about the logical connections of these components, so the input and the output wires. Remember, as I said previously, that there are also always, for each of these gates, there are always the high voltage wires and the low voltage wires, which also are essential for their operation. But those are neglected in logical diagrams, and I won't really discuss them henceforth, because they're not, because although they're essential to the physical implementation of the devices, they're not essential to their logical behavior. And we're abstracting away from the implementation when we discuss the logical behavior of these devices. So I'll just talk about the inputs and the output wires and ignore those high and low voltage wires. So, to begin our survey of the main logical components which we'll need to build our processor, we begin with a multiplexer. A multiplexer is just a fancy name for an input selector. It takes as input a number of data inputs, so a bunch of wires, maybe four different wires, say, A, B, C, and D, and it outputs one of those. It decides, or the circuit determines, which of the inputs is outputted as the output in accordance with the pattern of control bits that are also fed as input. So for example, if we had four different input bits, we would need two control bits to uniquely select which of them we wanted. That's because two input bits allow us four different combinations to select between. I could either put them both as both zero, one as zero and one as one, or the other is zero and the other is one, or both could be one. So there are four possible combinations of zeros and ones in two bits, in two selecting bits, that allow me to select uniquely which of the four input bits that I want. And multiplexers are fairly simple to implement. All you do is you take your control bits, knot them, so you split them, so you, you take the original signal and the knotted signal as well. That just ensures that I have the original and the opposite of that signal, which is often useful. That's a technique that we use in a number of these components. I then feed 
these appropriately into a bunch of AND gates. In fact, I'll have four AND gates, one for each of my possible inputs. So this is a, 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 a multiplexer with four inputs that I'm discussing here, four inputs and one output. Each of my inputs connects up to one of my AND gates. That's simple. An AND gate only outputs one if all of its input bits are one. So basically all I have to do is feed in one specific combination of control bits into each AND gate alongside the input bit. So each of my AND gates effectively represents one of the input bits that I can select. So for example, suppose I want to select input A, the first input. A natural way of coding that would be to code it with the control bits 0, 0. So to do that, I just feed in the knotted control bits into the first AND gate and also into which I feed the A input. So that first AND gate outputs a 1 when all of its inputs are 1. When does that happen? It happens when A is 1 and also when both of the control bits are 0. Remember, they're inverted before they go into this gate, so 0s turn into 1s and then are inputted into the AND gate. So only when A is 1 and both of the control bits are 0 is this AND gate going to output a 1. If my A input is a 0, then it will output a 0. So the two control bits effectively turn on the AND gate, ensuring that only this AND gate will be able to produce a 1. And then whether it actually does produce a 1 or not depends on whether the input to the AND gate from A is a 1 or a 0. And then I just do that for each of my possible inputs. So the first AND gate gets an input from my two inverted um, control bits, but my second AND gate will get an inverted input from one and a non-inverted input from the other, essentially because it's only going to it's only going to be activated when I get when one of my control bits is a one and, when, and the other is a zero. So there's a particular combination of those control bits that will activate the second AND gate. The second AND gate is also connected to my second input, so again it will mirror the second AND gate will mirror the output of the second input bit, but only when it's been selected by the appropriate combination of control signals. Likewise for all of my other AND gates as well. Only one of them will ever be active at a given time, depending on the particular combination of control bits that I have. The active AND gate will always mirror what the what its corresponding input gate is, and all of these AND gates, or four of them in this case, are then just fed into an OR gate, which will just ensure that whatever the only one of them remember will, will ever be active in a given time so the OR gate will just ensure that whatever that one active AND gate outputs is also outputted by the OR gate. If the AND gate outputs a 1, the OR gate will 2. If it outputs a 0, then none of the, none of the other AND gates will output a 0 so the OR gate will output a 0 as well. So the OR gate effectively just makes sure that I pick whichever of the AND gates is currently active. So that's how you implement a multiplexer. It's quite simple. Just a one-to-one -one relationship between your inputs and your AND gates, you select an active AND gate using your control bits, and then feed them all into OR gates, and the output comes out from the OR gate. And so the result of that is that using these control bits, I can select which of the inputs that I want. A decoder is the next device that we'll look at, and it's the exact opposite of a multiplexer. So it's also called a demultiplexer. Instead of selecting one input from many, it turns a small number of input bits into a large number of output bits, effectively taking a compact representation of some number and outputting the full representation. So it's that's why it's called a decoder. It decodes some compact representation of a number to, to the full representation. So a multiplexer turns many to one, whereas a decoder turns one or a few to many, so that's why they're opposites of each other. It's mainly used for memory addressing. So if I have thousands of memory registers, we'll get to registers in a moment, but they store memory in the in the computer. I don't want to have to store and then send out thousands of bits every time I want to specify exactly which of these registers that I want. That would be very tedious. Instead, I want to use a small number of control bits that I use to address a specific register, which then can be decoded, that address is decoded by a decoder circuit, and it sends out the appropriate signal to the exact register that I want. Now, this is essential because in order to access the value of a particular register, I have to, what's called assert, that means turn on to logical one, I have to assert a particular wire that runs to that circuit, to that register, and only that register. So each register in memory needs to have its own specific wire that's asserted in order to read or, or write 
data off that register. But if I have millions or even billions of these registers, I need to have millions or billions of these wires. It would be silly to have millions or billions of wires connecting the, my computer directly to the RAM, just so the computer can decide exactly which register that it wants, and it asserts that wire and then gets the signal from it. That, that's obviously absurd. That would be like me having a direct mail delivery from my house straight to every other house, or from every house in the world directly to every other house in the world. It would be extremely inefficient. You have all these millions of wires connecting uh, each other, and it would be chaos. Instead, the way that it's done is that I write the address of the person I want to send my message to, which is sent to a central location. The address is decoded, and then that enables it to be sent on to its final destination. So everyone sends their letters to the post office, which decodes effectively the address and uh, selects the appropriate route uh, to send the letter on. This is more or less what's happening with a decoder. When When the CPU decides that it wants to access a particular memory in a particular register, it has to know the address of that register, but the address needs to only contain n control bits in order to be able to address two to the power of n different devices. So, for example, if I want, to, if I have four gigabytes worth of RAM, that's uh, basically four billion different registers. I only need thirty-two control bits to specify exactly which of those registers that I want. So, sending thirty-two control bits is much easier than sending out four billion control bits, obviously. So, sending out an exact combination of those thirty-two control bits allows me to specify which of two to the power of thirty-two different memory registers that I want. Once the decoder takes in that signal of those control bits, its circuitry, essentially, uh, it's similar to the circuitry of uh, the multiplexer that I described, except in reverse, the outputs are the inputs and the inputs are the outputs. So there's a bunch of AND gates and, and NOT gates from the control bits and so on. But the base factor is essentially the same. The circuit allows decoding of the control bits so that it will output exactly the wire necessary to activate the register that we want. So... In one of these memory decoders, there might be 32 input wires, say, corresponding to a 32-bit address, and 4 billion different output wires corresponding to exactly which of the memory registers we want to read from. So our AND gates in the decoder only have inputs from the control bits, so each AND gate is activated when exactly the right combination of control bits is activated to select just that AND gate, and then the the AND gate then turns on and activates the the register uh, appropriately. So because of the many different combinations of 32 bits of numbers that I can have, I'm able to have all of those different possible combinations, all those those very large number of, of registers that I can uniquely access. So that's how a decoder works. A comparator is a special circuit that checks the relative value of two numbers. This is essential for implementing conditional branches, which is one of those control structures that I mentioned before that we need in order to have a Turing-complete computer. Remember I said that we need those three different types of control structures. Uh, One is a sequence, and uh, one is iteration, and the other one is essentially an if-then statement, a a comparison, so that we perform one operation in one case and a different operation in the other case. So in order to perform that type of conditional branching instruction, we need to be able to compare the relative values of two different numbers. And a simple way of doing that is just using a comparator. You recall the XNOR gate that I mentioned, that was the last logic gate that we discussed, that outputs a 1 only when the two inputs are both the same. So effectively we can implement a comparator using a bunch of XNOR gates. You just wire up the corresponding bits of each of the numbers that I want to check. So remember, the two numbers that I want to check will be binary numbers. Maybe they'll be 32-bit numbers. So there'll be be 32 different um, wires that encode the bits corresponding to those numbers. So we might say that the rightmost, the least significant of those bits is called bit 0. And the one to the left of that, the next to least significant bit is called bit 1, and so on up to um, bit 31. There's no bit 32 because we started at 0, right? So all I have to do is put my 0 bit from my first number, say A0, as input into an XNOR gate, along with my 0 bit from my second number, so B0. So A0 and B0 both go in as the XNOR input to my XNOR gate. It checks to see if they're the same. And I do likewise for my A1 and my B1 bits, and my A2 and B2 bits, and so on, for all of the bits in the number that I want, the, the two numbers that I want to compare. And then I feed all of these XNOR outputs into an AND gate, because they all need to be the same if my numbers are to be equal, obviously. Each of the bits has to be equal. And so then 
well, I take the output just straight from the AND gate. If It's one only if all of the bits are equal to each other. If even one of the bits is different, then the AND gate won't go, will be a zero, and my uh, output will be a zero. At this point, it would be useful to clarify that originally I discussed AND gates and OR gates as having only two inputs and one output. But you can have AND gates and OR gates with any number of inputs that you want. They always have to have one output. But you can have AND gates with three, four, or 20 inputs if you wanted to. And they operate as you would think. If only if all of the inputs are one, is the output going to be equal to one? If even one of them is not equal to one, then the output will be zero. And for an OR gate, it's the exact opposite. Only exactly one of the inputs has to be one in order for the output of an OR gate to be one. It doesn't matter if 19 of them are zero. If only one of them is a one, then the output will be one. So that's how we can have these sort of AND gates and OR gates with, with many different inputs. The next logical component that we'll look at is called an adder. An adder is a circuit that adds two numbers together. So we just looked at a comparator which compares the values of numbers and adder adds them together. Adders can also perform subtraction very easily because if you remember the way uh, two's complement numbers works is that we just flip all of the individual bits and then add one to it. So I can flip bits by just using individual not gates and then I can, if I've got an adder, I just add one. So an adder with small modifications so that you flip the bits and add one can, can just be turned into a subtractor fairly easily. So how does an adder work? In order to implement an adder, I first need to consider a 1-bit full adder. A 1-bit full adder takes three inputs and gives two outputs. The two main inputs, if you like, are A and B, are just the two bits of my numbers that I want to add. The other input, the third one, is called the carry-in input. And this is if I have an additional bit to carry in uh, from some previous part of, of, the, uh, of the addition. And, and we'll see what this means in a moment. My two outputs are just my outputs, so the, the sum of A and B, and also an additional carry-out bit that I will need if I can't represent the, the output with, with just a single bit. So this is exactly the same as if I'm adding up regular decimal numbers. If I have, say, 3 plus 9, I can't just write that as a single number because, in fact, it's 12. So I have to write down a 2 and then carry the 1 over and then include it in my next uh, calculation. It, it's pretty much exactly the same with with adding binary numbers together. So you just have an output, which is the output of the sum, and an additional carry bit output. That's a single bit full adder. It only adds single one-bit numbers, obviously by itself not that useful. But to form a multi-bit adder, which can add arbitrarily large numbers, you just add enough circuitry in, all I have to do is connect up my carry out bit from each segment of it to the carry in bit of the next segment. So the numbers are appropriately carried over, just as you carry over uh, extra powers of 10 when, you, when you're doing an addition sum. Now, let's think about this. When should my output bit, not, not the carry out, the regular output bit, when should that bit be equal to 1 and when should it be equal to 0? Well, it should be equal to 0 if all of my input bits, including the carry in bit, are 0, obviously. It should also be 0 if exactly two of the input bits, it doesn't matter if they're A and B or the carry bit, if exactly two of those are zero, it should also be equal to zero. Because if exactly two of them are zero, then that means that my output is two, which I can represent by one in the in the carry out bit, and then a zero in the in the regular out bit. If I have exactly one of my inputs being a one, then my output should be one. And if I have all three of them being one, then my output should be three, in which case I represent that by a one in the output bit and also a one in the carry-out bit. So basically, I just need to implement that circuitry, the, circ the circuitry to ensure that the regular output bit is uh, a one in the case where I have either exactly one input being one or all three inputs being one, and my carry-out bit is a one in the case where I have either two or three of the input bits, including the carry bit, being a one. And you can do that using XOR gates and AND gates and OR gates. I won't describe the exact circuitry because it's a little bit confusing to try and explain it without being able to draw a diagram. But it's fairly simple to do. You can do it just with a handful of gates. And really all we're doing is, is picking out the right conditions in which the output is a one and, and which the carry out is a one. And it's very easy to do because there are only a few, a handful of possible conditions. 
really my output could be 0, 1, 2, or 3, and I just need to make sure my output bits are as they should be in each of those cases. So it's not hard to do that. And then, that's my 1-bit adder. I just have to connect the carry out from each of my 1-bit adders to the carry in of the next 1-bit adder and link them up in a big long series. And that will ensure that I'm carrying over my extra powers of 2 as I should be, and thus adding and thus allowing me to add up arbitrarily long binary numbers put in on the inputs. I'll also have an extra carry out bit because it's possible that I could have a larger number obviously than either of my input numbers by themselves. So I'll need an extra carry out bit to account for that situation. So that's how you can implement an adder using just logic gates. Multipliers can also be implemented by using logic gates. I won't really describe the circuitry there, but I'll just describe the basic idea. One method taught in school for multiplying decimal numbers is based on calculating partial products. Basically, that's the method where you know you write one number times and then the other number beneath it, and then you just take each digit of the number that's below, the second number, and multiply that by all of the digits on the top number. Then you take the next digit of the bottom number and multiply that by all of the digits on the top number, and so on. And then you just add up all of those partial products that you get along the way. That might not make a whole lot of sense if uh, you're a bit rusty on paper methods of multiplication, but don't worry too much about that. Basically, the key point here is that you can reduce multiplication to basically lots of additions as well as very simple multiplications of times by zero or times by one. And multiplying by zero or by one is very easy in binary because it just means either turn it to zero or keep it the same. So effectively, a multiplier can be implemented just by combining a whole bunch of adders together in a very uh, careful way, and also including a few extra logic gates to uh, account for those multiplying by 0 or multiplying by 1. But you don't actually have to do that much new. It's just a lot of adders put together, more or less. You, you can use this algorithm of partial products to turn multiplication into addition. In fact, that's what multiplication is. It's just iterated addition. Now let's shift gears slightly and talk about the clock generator. This is not exactly a logic component, but it is crucial for the operation of uh, the logic, other logic components inside the computer, and so I wanted to talk about it here. The clock generator is a piece of circuitry that generates a regular clock signal, usually a square wave consisting of equally spaced high and low signals. Its basic purpose, the purpose of the clock signal, is to act like a metronome. It keeps the activities of the computer in order and keeps them occurring at a regular rate. So this clock signal is used all over the processor in order to make sure that things keep happening. If you didn't have a clock signal then you would just have whatever your original input to your processor is and whatever your original output is and it would just always stay like that forever. Unless you manually changed the inputs. That's a bit of a pain. What you want that to do is happen automatically. So you generate this sequence of high and low signals from the clock which then uh, sends those around the computer automatically, and that allows things to happen automatically as you uh, vary that cycle and change the input. And I'll explain how that happens in a moment. But uh, this is this clock generator and clock, the clock signal that it produces is essential for having the computer operate automatically instead of essentially you having to do everything by hand. And obviously, if you had to ma manually change the inputs every time you wanted to perform a, a computation on a computer, it would be kind of pointless because it would just be way too slow. The whole point of a computer is that you can do things much quicker than humans can. Modern clock generators uh, have uh, frequencies, so that's just the, the, the time between when you go up and when you come down and when you go up again, that the, the time of a full cycle. Modern clocks have frequencies of several gigahertz, which is several billion oscillations per second. The faster the clock operates, the more cycles the processor can go through in a given unit of time, and thus the more processing it can get done. The main limitation on the clock speed is the amount of heat that's generated, and also propagation delay in the circuit elements, which decreases as you make transistors smaller. So this is what I mentioned previously. We want to make transistors smaller, so the propagation delay is... Uh, smaller, and therefore we can increase the speed of the clock and get the processor to run faster. But how does the clock actually work? Well, clock signals are produced using a device called a crystal oscillator, which is essentially a small strip of quartz that vibrates as a result of the reverse piezoelectric effect. That is, when an electric field is applied to this crystal, positive ions in the lattice are pushed in one direction while negative ions move in the other. This is what you'd expect. They, they essentially move apart to some small degree as a result of the applied electric field. This opposite movement of the different types of charges causes the material to distort, that is, the, sh the physical shape of the material to distort, ever so slightly. When the field is removed, the material returns to its original shape, thereby generating a field. 
So if I apply a field, that leads to a, leads to a change in the shape of the crystal, which, when I remove the field, in turn relaxes, changing the shape back, and then generating a field again. So it's a, so I, I need, if I just put in a small amount of external current, it's a self-generating process, which produces a very regular and predictable um, oscillation, uh, which can be converted to a square wave um, of very high frequency. So, so this is how uh, clock signals work. Effectively, it's a crystal oscillating at a, at a very high frequency as you put a current through it. The next logical component that we're going to look at are called latches or flip-flops. Now, there is a technical difference between latches and flip-flops. Flip-flops are clocked and so are edge-triggered, while latches are not clocked and so are level-triggered, but don't really worry about that. If a logic component is clocked, it means it takes input from the clock, which should be fairly uh, evident, and so we'll, we'll change according to whether the clock is, is high or low on that part of the cycle. But I'm not too worried about the technical difference between flip-flops and latches. I'm just going to talk about them as if they're synonymous, uh, focusing more on, on flip-flops, uh, because those are connected to the clock. So a flip-flop is a circuit that has two stable states, and hence it can be used to store a, a single bit of information. And flip-flops, therefore, are, form the basis for storing memories in a, in a computer. A flip-flop can be built by putting two NAND gates next to each other and wiring the output of each of them into one of the input bits of, of the other. So, so they're sort of crossed over in, in this sort of X-shaped configuration. The output of each goes into one of the inputs of the other and each of, each of them takes one additional input uh, aside from the output of the other. So that might sound a bit strange, but it turns out that with this setup, the output of the NAND gate depends upon not only what the two input, the two additional input signals are, but also on the previous state that it was in. So the two additional input signals that I mentioned are called S and R for set and reset. The output Q is taken from the NAND gate with the S input. Now, this is actually an active low device. Now, that means that when we want to achieve the effect of setting the input to 1, we actually set it to 0 instead. So active low is a bit confusing because it means that it's activated when it's set to 0 rather than 1. But logically, it gets you the same result. So the output Q is, is taken from the S input NAND gate, and sometimes we take Q0, which is just the opposite of output Q, from the R NAND gate. That's the one that takes the R input. But don't worry about that. Let's just focus on the the Q output coming from the the um, NAND gate with the S input. Now S stands for set and R stands for reset. So it turns out that if both set and reset are set to zero, or in other words, if not set and not reset are set to one, there is no change in the output Q. So we can't actually say what the output of Q is. This is what makes these type of circuits different from the combinatorial circuits that we talked about previously, like the multiplexes, decoders, and so on, because we could always describe their outputs purely in terms of their inputs. In this case, we can't actually do that, because when the set and the reset are both set to 1, remembering that they're active low, so that the device is neither set nor reset, there's no change in the output. So all we can say is that the output stays, Q stays at whatever it was previously. We don't actually know what Q is without the additional information of what state Q started off as being. If we set the reset by setting it to 0 and leave set 0, so you can only set one of the sets or resets at a time. It's not allowed to set them both at once. Obviously, that wouldn't really make sense to simultaneously set and reset something. But basically, if we set the flip-flop, the output always goes to 1, whereas if we reset it, the output always goes to 0. If then, after setting or resetting, we turn both of the set and resets inputs to 0, then the output of the flip-flop just stays at whatever it was, either the set or the reset, it stays the same. And that is possible because of this sort of recursive setup of the output of each of the NAND gates feeding into one of the inputs of the other NAND gate. In order to maintain the correct output, you need to have a constant current flowing. So if you, you turn off the power, then you don't know what's going to happen. The, the output's undefined. But as long as the power's still operating, the output of this flip-flop will always just be whatever the output was last time you set or reset it. So that's a little bit confusing, but the basic point is that by wiring two NAND gates into each other like this and having a set and a reset option, then we can 
set up the circuit so that the output always stays what it was before it stays the same unless we set it to 1 or reset it to 0. And this is very useful uh, obviously for storing memory. With a little bit of extra circuitry, we can change this SR flip-flop into what's called a JK flip-flop, which is a little bit more complicated, but more versatile, because it now includes a toggle operation that changes the state to the opposite of whatever it was before. And usually the way this works is that a clock signal is added in, into the circuit so that if I want to be able to set the value of the flip-flop to 1, I just uh, put a 1 on the J input and a 0 on the K. If I want to reset, I just put a 0 on the J and a 1 on the K. So that's more or less the same as it was in the SNR case. But now the difference is that I'm allowed to put a 1 on the J and the K at the same time. I'm allowed to sort of set and reset at the same time, although they're called J and K now, uh, to avoid the confusion. And now what that does is it, it, it flips uh, the bit. So previously that this operation wasn't allowed. Now it flips whatever the bit is. So if, it's, if it was previously a 1, it goes to a 0, and if it was previously a 0, it goes to a 1. And also, if I leave both of the inputs as 0, then there's no change. So this JK flip-flop is very versatile. I can leave it the same if I leave both J and K off. I can set it if I set J to 1. I can reset it to 0 if I set K to 1, J to 0. Or I can just flip it from whatever it is to the opposite if I set them both to 1. And these changes always occur on the leading edge of the clock signal. So whenever the clock begins to go up from 0 to a higher voltage, uh, the change takes place. And then it will stay in the same state until the clock next goes up again. So this is a, what makes it a flip-flop because it's clocked in this way. The next logical device that I wanted to discuss is a counter. A counter is a circuit that keeps track of a sequence, either counting up or counting down. It's very useful at keeping track of what stage the processor is at in a multi-stage operation, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. So a synchronous counter can be made by wiring up a series of JK flip-flops to a clock, as, as they normally are, as I mentioned, and then just taking the output of each of these uh, JK flip-flops and sending it to the input of the next one. So essentially how this works is that the very first flip-flop will toggle every clock cycle. So the J and the K inputs are permanently wired to 1, so that they're always on. So I've always set this first flip-flop to toggle every time it's clocked, every time it, the, the clock changes from, from low to high. The second flip-flop takes its J and K input from the output of my first flip-flop, which means that instead of toggling every cycle, it toggles every other cycle. Because remember, it will only toggle when the J and K inputs are equal to 1, and that only happens every second cycle, because my first flip-flop is 1 in one cycle, and then it's 0, and then it's 1 again, and then it's 0 again. So my second flip-flop will toggle every second cycle. My third flip-flop will toggle every fourth cycle, because it will only flip-flop if the first two are both equal to 1. And the fourth flip-flop will only toggle every eighth cycle, and so on and so on. So by reading which of my flip-flops are toggled to on and which are toggled to off, I can tell exactly what cycle I'm on up to uh, however many I've got. So if I had eight of these flip-flops all wired together, I would be able to count up to eight different cycles. I could tell whether it was on cycle one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way up to eight before it would... Um, the, the cycle would reset. I can't tell the difference between the ninth and, and the first cycle. But... By building a counter this way, I'm able to generate a signal that is only on uh, at the exact right stage in the cycle that I want. So if my processor needs to step through four different micro-operations in order to carry out a given operation, I can uh, send it just the right signal so that it so that control circuitry knows whether I should be carrying out the first or the second or the third component in that series of operations using this simple counter device here. Now, I mentioned registers before, but I just uh, now want to talk about them in a little bit more detail. A register is just a bunch of flip-flops connected together. So instead of holding just one bit, one flip-flop holds one bit, it holds a bunch of bits. So a 16-bit register will hold 16 bits, one for each flip-flop. Often registers in a, in a computer or in the processor will be the same size as the word size in an instruction set. That's, a word is the basic unit that you operate on. So these days, a word is often either 32 or 64 bits long, although in, in simpler models of computers, the word bits will be shorter. Maybe they'll only be 8 bits or 16 bits long. The longer the word, obviously, the more information you can fit in there, but also potentially the more wastage there is if you don't need all of those bits. Usually registers are made from D flip-flops, which are especially useful for memory storage because instead of having the two or even three inputs that some of the other flip-flops have, a D input only has one input, the D, and has one output, Q. And a D flip-flop is very simple. Every clock tick, 
it on every clock tick, the flip-flop simply sets its value to whatever D is. So if D is 1, the, the flip-flop goes to holds a value of 1. If D is 0, the flip-flop goes to a value of 0. Obviously, that wouldn't be useful for holding a memory if that was all there was, because every time the clock ticked, uh, the memory would keep flipping. But all you have to do is you and the clock tick with some enable bit that says whether you want to write to that given register or not. If the enable bit is set to 1, that's added with the clock bit, then the, the clock input to all of these flip-flops is asserted, and it will simply set the value of the D flip-flop to whatever the D input is. If, on the other hand, the enable bit is set to zero, then it doesn't matter what the clock does. When you and it with a zero, the output is zero, and so the register won't be uh, won't be changed. So con- connecting a bunch of D flip-flops together in parallel is a very simple way of uh, instantiating a register. A tri-state buffer is another very important device which is useful for uh, dealing with registers. A tri-state buffer is a device that is used to enable or disable writing to a particular wire on a bus. Buses we'll get to in a moment, but a bus is basically like shared output wires that lots of different devices can all connect to. If you remember earlier in this episode, though, I said that you can't connect up the outputs of multiple transistors to each other, because what happens if one was turned on and the other was turned off? They'd both be competing to try and set the wire to to different values, and you'd have undefined results. The way you get around this is to use a tri-state buffer. A tri-state buffer is essentially just an enable device. When the signal to the tri-state buffer is set to 1, it will connect up uh, two circuits to each other. When it's set to 0, the circuits will be disconnected from each other. And so if I have multiple devices that want to write to the same output wires, or the same bus, for example, all I have to ensure is that all of them are connected to the wires, not directly, but via a tri-state bus, and then just enable one of those tri-state buses corresponding to whichever of the say, registers, for example, that I want to write to this shared output. And that way I can ensure that only one of them at any given time is is connected to the shared bus, and I don't have multiple uh, devices all connected to the bus at the same time. You can implement a tri-state buffer by adding a PMOS and an NMOS transistor either side of an inverter gate, and then attaching a knotted enable signal to the PMOS and just a regular old enable symbol to the NMOS. This way, when the enable signal is off, both of the additional gates, the new gates that I've put on, will will be off. So the reason I put a not input to the PMOS, remember, is that when the the gate on a PMOS transistor is given a high voltage, that turns the transistor off. Whereas in an NMOS, in order to turn the transistor off, I need a low voltage. So if I want both of these transistors to be off at the same time, the PMOS and the NMOS, I have to send a regular old signal to the NMOS and an inverted signal to the PMOS so that they'll always turn off and on in the same uh, in the same situation rather than in opposite situations as they normally would. Now, with this setup, the advantage is that when the enable signal is off, both of the two new gates that I've added will also be off, and thus the original inverter with its outputs coming from the, the drains of both of the gates, both of those will be disconnected from the entirety of the rest of the circuit. And that's what we call a high Z state. Z's, Z standing for impedance. So basically high Z means that there's no current flowing. It's disconnected from the rest of the circuit. It's neither a logical zero nor a logical one. It's just undefined. And simply that just means that if the enable bit is set to zero, I, I've disconnected my not gate here with with the rest of the circuit, so it it doesn't have a logical output. Only when I enable it is it connected uh, to the rest of the circuit, and thus is able to take on either a logical one or a logical zero, depending on what the additional input bit is. So remember, there's an input bit which goes directly to the not gate, and then there's an enable bit which allows the whole thing either to be connected or to be disconnected to the rest of the circuitry. The enable bit doesn't determine what the output bit is; it just allows it to take an output bit. So having this set up at each of the connections between all of my, say, different registers and the bus line is what allows me to connect up one and only one device to the bus at a time and not have a situation where I'm trying to connect multiple devices up to the bus at once and therefore getting confused results. To finish out this episode, therefore, it's worthwhile to just mention the bus, which we'll uh, talk about more in the next episode. But a bus is just a collection of wires connected up to a number of different components or devices, often in the processor. You can actually talk about different types of devices. uh, A bus that connects registers and the ALU together uh, within the processor. I'll talk about the ALU in the next episode, so don't worry about that. But so a bus can connect components inside a processor, or it can also connect the processor as a whole with peripherals and other components on the motherboard. 
When two devices need to communicate, a typical way of doing this is to put a signal on the bus and the other device then reads it off the bus. This saves from having to connect each device directly to each other device. This is what I mentioned before with the post office thing. It's much easier to have to put every all signals in a central location and then read off that central location rather than to send everything directly to every other device. It leads to too many wires and too much confusion. Modern computers have lots of different buses connecting to different devices. Particularly, there's often a separate bus for transferring data and for transferring an address. So if I want to access the memory, what I can do is put an address on the address bus, which is then decoded by the memory, and that allows the appropriate enable-wise to be set, which then allows the memory to place the relevant data onto the data bus, which I can then read off into the processor. Because of the fact that I want to try and connect multiple devices up to a single bus, I can't uh, do that directly because then otherwise the output of the bus will be undefined. So, you know, the different devices have different values. Instead, I ensure that only one is actually connected to the bus electrically at any given time using these tri-state buffers. So that's all of the logic gates and logic components that I wanted to talk about in this episode. What we need to do in the next episode is put these to show how we can put these different components together in accordance with what's called the von Neumann architecture, in order to make an actual processor, which is the device that, the, the physical device that carries out the logical operations uh, and that is at the heart of the functioning of a computer system. And so that we'll discuss in the next episode. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If so, consider leaving a favorable review of the podcast on a podcast aggregator of your choice, such as iTunes or various other options as well. You can also go onto the Facebook page of the podcast and like that, which is a way of increasing awareness about the show and also finding uh, new updates when I'm releasing new episodes. If you have any questions, suggestions, or other feedback, feel free to email me. My email address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.